to the betrayal of Jesus and His arrest. So, just taking a, a look back so that we, we have the whole picture here. Jesus coming in the, into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, coming from their supper that they'd shared together, um, the teachings, if you were to want to read uh, the chapters 14, 15, 16, along in there, 17 of John, you'd get a picture of some of the conversation and the teachings and the prayer that Jesus had with His disciples. Um, and very intense time together. And uh, He instituted at that point the, what we t- traditionally call today now the Last Supper or the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. Um, and it was that time where he was, he was pointing this whole time. And even before He got there, and candidly for the last year in His ministry, frequently mentioning, you know, His face was resolute, pointed towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. Uh, that this was going to happen, that he was going to give himself and die. We, and we've seen already, for instance, how Peter has intervened and said, oh, no, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, we won't let that happen. And just on and on these different things, uh, down to the point where Jesus, uh, Peter would just, before all of this, you know, would say, uh, I, won't, I won't forsake you. I, even if I have to die, I will stand with you. And so... Uh, and of course, at that point, Jesus makes a prophetic picture and says that there will be a denial from you tonight before this is all over and said and done. They haven't caught this. I think the important thing that you understand is the disciples still have not caught this. That, that, that this is a, a, a heavy-hearted time. That, that Jesus indeed is going to be arrested. Indeed, there's going to be His death. And they are not prepared. In fact, we can go back even in, in, in the Gospel of John, clear back into chapter 2 where certain things are said and done. And, and, and it says, we didn't, uh, we didn't understand this until later. And, it, and, and it's at the point in time where the Holy Spirit is poured out on them that all of this starts to come together so much so that Peter, of all people, is able to preach a sermon that pinpoints all of it, how it happened, how the Scriptures came together out of the Old Testament and allowed them to to, to understand, now we get it. Now we understand. And I, again, I frequently find myself looking back and saying, how could they be missing all of this? You know, Jesus hasn't been quiet about it. He hasn't been particularly subtle about it. And, and, and then I realized that I have the advantage of not only the Gospels, but the book of Acts and all of the letters that reinforce those uh, teachings and, and I realized I've got more information to work with than they had. Plus, the moment I confessed Christ, I had the Holy Spirit indwell me to open my eyes to Scripture and start putting it together. We have that blessing. We have the Word of God. And so I, I realized I better, I better be careful how I look at them and, and, and realize, that, you know, where am I? Instead of saying, wow, how could you fall that short? And realize how short I fall. And, uh, and, and be accountable for me and, not, and, and use them as an example of, of God's grace as well as the reality of who we are as we walk day through day in our lives, setting aside the things of God and, and just thinking on our own. And so uh, as we go through this, uh, we look at, at the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the three times that Jesus prays, uh, the, the second time with the uh, administering angel, uh, if we put all the Gospels together, you'd find the administering angel to, to strengthen him, that he literally sweat drops of blood 
uh, uh, he was anxious about this. And what was his prayer? You recall, it was that he wouldn't have to drink the cup that God had for him. The cup is the cup of judgment. God's wrath on sin. And Jesus knew that once he, once he ingested that, if you will, he, he, he tasted the death for us, he would know what it was like to be separated from God in a way that he, as an eternal being, had never known. And he would know it in a way we will never know because of his grace and his mercy. He experienced it for us. He experienced what we were supposed to experience. All who believe and confess Christ, what we were supposed to experience, He experienced. And so as He's in the garden, He is anxious about this. And, and His prayer isn't so much that He's not actually saying, I don't want to do this as much as He's just wrestling with it and the reality of it and getting ready to face it. His, his, his prayer actually always ends with, not my will, but your will, Father. That's what we came here to do. This is the plan that we have. And, and he realizes that this is, is where he's at. And so we finally come down to that point where he comes out. Each time he found the disciples sleeping. Uh, and you notice, even though he says, could you not sleep with, you know, stay awake with me and, and this type of thing, he doesn't really rebuke them. And, and finally, the, this last time he comes out, and in verse 46 of, of, of uh, chapter 26 of, of Matthew, he says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Rise, let us be going. And this let us be going phrase is the intention of taking, and it's an interesting way of looking at it, it's, uh, it's to take a step forward. And the idea is to go and face what is coming against us. You know, generally speaking, if you know that there's something happening, the, the tendency is to take a, a step and, and, and go the, the different direction. Uh, and he's saying, we're, we're going to face this head on. And so let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Uh, and his betrayer, he's specifically speaking, the one who's going to betray me is at hand. He has approached us. You'll see where I get this in a minute, but I want you to understand that, that the the... They may have had a bit of a wait. In fact, they may have had a bit of a walk. It doesn't tell us. But there is a large number of people approaching them at the Mount of Olives. Some of them have swords, as would be the Roman soldiers. They had that unique short sword that was the, theirs. The, they, they won more wars in close quarters because they, that was the way they designed their, their infantry and their legions and everything, to fight in close quarters. And their sword was designed for that kind of, of action. It was a two-edged sword, in fact. Very lethal. And you've got to understand, any of the soldiers that were in Palestine were seasoned soldiers. They knew exactly how to use them, too. They weren't you know, new, newbies at this. So there are, that's a serious threat. We get a picture from uh, putting the scriptures together. Uh, it was a band of soldiers. It might have been a cohort. Uh, some, uh, in fact, a lot of, of scholars think that it was. A cohort would have been around uh, between six and 700 men. Uh, the reason why I want you to think about that is because that's a large group of people coming with swords, armor, dressed <laughs> in their military covering. That doesn't move stealthily. Not only that, but they also have temple priests, uh, uh, t- 
temple guards, and, and it's also they've been mentioned like as temple police, they actually had a club that they, they carried. And so it says they came with swords and clubs. That's the club that they carried was something like, I think the closest thing that we would understand it would be like the, the, the policeman and a billy club, you know, as, as a weapon to, to use. And so uh, there were them, and then there was myriads of other people from the Sanhedrin, uh, scribes and, and, and Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is no small group of people. Some estimate that it could have been a thousand people. Do you think that at, as Jesus says this, that you know, I, I'm trying to put this in a time frame. I'm thinking that as Jesus says this, is about the time that they're approaching the Mount of Olives, not even into the garden, even close to the garden. We get that idea of a time frame where it was like, oh, they woke up and there they were. But this couldn't happen quietly. They had to have been hearing it come up the hill. Even though it's a short distance, I believe that they had to hear it. And uh, I also thought something side of this was, was interesting. The brook Kidron that runs down by Jerusalem, that the, the temple uh, ceremonial Passover and, and, and as well as any of the sacrificial lambs, the drains from the temple that wash that out run into the brook Kidron. And so that's, it's believed by some that Jesus, when they spoke, stepped over the book, Brook Kidron into the, uh, onto the Mount of Olives into that area, were stepping over uh, water that might be crimson in color. And it also has, it, it apparently it's something that, that doesn't wash out well. It has the smell of death, of, of, of blood. And... Uh, so they, you know, Jesus crosses that, and, and, and I think that was symbolic that they meant that. But it dawned on me, so did all those soldiers and all those people. They crossed over it too. The blood that, that, that was a picture of, of that would be shed for sin, they were now going to kill the Lamb of God. And it just kind of overwhelmed me. I kind of thought, you know, here, you know, one more clue before they <laughs> was there's a sacrifice, you know, the, the remnants of sacrifice as we go to arrest him. So, uh, that's where we come into verse 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came out of the twelve. Now, when it says while he was still speaking, he was talking to his disciples, but I believe they have moved uh, a little bit. And, and Judas came out of, of the twelve, and, or excuse me, one of the twelve. By the way, that alone is an interesting picture. One of the twelve. You'll never see the disciples recording him as a demon or as a, a terrible person. They, they, and, and even up to this point, they didn't even understand what his purpose was. I think they were totally shocked as they saw Judas and then not even sure what was going on. You know that when Jesus had a conversation with Judas at the table, he had identified him as the one who was going to betray, but they still didn't catch it. And when Jesus, when Judas was excused, and Jesus says, "Go do what you do quickly. Go, go do it." They thought Judas, since he held the purse, the money purse, that he was going to go and and uh, maybe give money to the poor or buy something that they they would need later on in the evening before the the stores closed. Whatever, you know. Uh, it was it was they they didn't have any thought. Now they see him coming. 
Now, he was coming with a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders to the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up to his, him and laid hands on, his, uh, on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this he had, take, had taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Judas, one of the twelve, comes up to betray Jesus. The Gospel of John records this incident. That they'd gone out from the garden, and it says, Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place. See, Jesus had frequently come to this place. They, he, it, was, it was where Judas... You know, if Jesus was, was wanting to evade this in any way, he wouldn't have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane that night. You know, he'd, you know, but, but Judas knew where he was. So Judas, having procured... Notice the, the, the instrumental part he's playing here. Judas, who had procured, he had sought this out. A band of soldiers, which is the idea of a cohort of soldiers, uh, it could have been less, but it could have been as many as six or seven hundred, and some officers from the chief priests, that would be the, the temple guard or temple police, and the Pharisees went with their lanterns and torches and weapons. That's why I say they couldn't be coming stealthy. They had their torches, they had their lanterns, they, you know, they're, they're coming through. And, and in the middle of the night, it would stand out, I think, all the more. Judas having this with him, it says, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am... Uh, okay, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, before I get to this next part, I just want you to understand... There's, there's, there, they've come very specifically. We want Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus speaks to them. He's, he's, I want, he took control of this situation from the very beginning. He's in charge. Before I go any further, I want to take a, 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 one more look at Judas. I know we've done this a little bit before, but just a reminder. Do you recall Judas being upset when Jesus was anointed in Bethany? With the 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 the, the nard the, the oil uh, that Mary had, that it was worth a year's wages, and who spoke first was Judas. Said so we could have used that to take care of the poor. John makes it real clear if you read that his account of that. 
Jesus didn't say that because he really believed about taking care of the poor. He said that because he was in charge of the purse. And quite simply, he was used to taking money out of it. And it says distinctly, clearly, he was a thief. Where Judas plays into this as far as what he was hoping to accomplish, I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of ideas about Judas and his character. But the fact that the way he's identified as a thief tells me that, that he, wasn't, he, he was a man that was out there for himself and himself alone. And I think he had visions of the kingdom of God with him possibly sitting there as the treasurer of the kingdom. Who knows? What a great place to be if you're a thief. And if he's been getting away with it for three years with Jesus, he could continue. But over the last few days, and certainly in the last hours of that evening, it was very clear this wasn't going to happen. Jesus, Judas had already consulted with the, 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 the Sanhedrin, some of the members of the Sanhedrin, about finding a time to turn him over to them. He figured, I don't know if he figured, well, I'm not going to get anything else out of this. He's, he's bound to determine. Maybe Judas may be the only one that had an idea of what was coming. He didn't hesitate to betray him. He didn't hesitate to turn him in. And what did he turn him in for? 30 pieces of silver. Not a big amount. But if you go into Zechariah, you'll read the, the, the picture of, of the betrayal of Jesus. And, and, and you'll realize, it says he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. By the way, you'll also find in Zechariah that the 30 pieces of silver was used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah, 400 years before all of this happened. Jesus was a thief. And before Jesus initiated the Last Supper at, the, at, their, at their feast, at the meal, is when Judas was dismissed from the, the group. And when he left, it says... Something very interesting. Let me let me go across this uh, with you. Uh, Jesus was asked at the dinner, uh, "Lord, who is it that's going to betray?" And Jesus answered, "It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So, when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, listen carefully, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. And it, 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 it says, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This is a whole other picture if you catch that verse. You don't, have, you don't find another scripture in, 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 in the Bible that says Satan actually possesses somebody. But Satan enters into him. Satan is, is like, like the Holy Spirit enters into us. I believe Satan enters into him. Who did Jesus face in all of his temptations? Satan. And now at his betrayal, it's as if he's coming face to face with the arch enemy. 
the one who Satan has entered into. And that also gives us a picture of where Judas is in all of this. He's certainly not one akin to Jesus. Judas, obsessed, possessed, I think, follows through and does what he thinks he must do to to get what he wants out of this. I looked at this also in thinking of the Jewish leaders. Why are they so mad? Why are they so angry? Why do they hate Jesus so? Well, it goes back to early teachings. Uh, he, he was teaching things that, that did not go with what the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the, and the temple people, were, uh, the leaders of the temple, the priests, were teaching the people. It was contrary. It was, he had, the Sermon on the Mount was, was the picture of something that, that had left the Hebrew people. It did, they couldn't identify with it. And they're, they're thinking, oh, this is amazing teaching. And the, and the intent of it, if you read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, how these people were so amazed by it, it's because they had never heard anything like it before. And all Jesus was doing was revealing what the Old Testament actually was quite full of. Ultimately, something they knew well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That they knew well. It came out right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so, Jesus is teaching this picture of, 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 of people coming close to God, not, not using all of these traditions that had come up over the centuries that the Pharisees were using. Uh, and Sanhedrin and the Sadducees were using. Uh, the selling, you know, he cleansed the temple. That didn't, you know, make a, the, the, the Sadducees very happy. They were making lots of money off of that. And so, all these things that he was doing, his teachings, his things, was pointing everybody to God and not necessarily to the local teachers. <laughs> and, and so, they were being, in a sense, bypassed and they, saw it, they felt it, they could see it. In fact, he was telling them they need to do the same thing with the, the rank and file. What is interesting, it says many did. So now the, the, the Sanhedrin is also looking at this. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish leadership. They're also looking at this saying some of our ranks are even going his way. And then the triumphal entry. All those people singing praises to Jesus. And he came riding in as the king. It was very clear. He cleansed the temple, declaring himself equal with the highest, the high priest and or actually, ultimately, God. Matthew chapter 23, it talks about Jesus confronting the scribes and the Pharisees. It's called the chapter of the seven woes. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but the, the, the way things were, were worded, it was very clear. I just want to read one of them to you. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe means an idea of beware and even judgment pending, you know, coming. You, scribes and Pharisees, and then he says, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but when are, that are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but with you, within 
you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Within the framework of that chapter, and you read all the seven woes, you can see why these guys were upset with Jesus. He called them out. He, and, and then he told the people, when they preach the word, and I'm paraphrasing this, but basically when they preach the word, listen. But whatever you do, don't act it out the way they do. You know, don't do what they do. Don't live the way they do. They were angry at Jesus. Miracles, teaching, seven woes. I think the number one reason, though, is the same thing that other people and what was allowed them to be able to whip up the crowd was that Jesus wasn't coming as the king they thought he would be. The king that would reestablish the nation of Israel like in the days of Solomon. Powerful and you know, a, 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 a kingdom to be reckoned with. With God you know, blessing them and and uh, from the Sanhedrin's point of view, the, the Jewish leadership ruling over it and uh, establishing this. And this was not what was happening. They had decided, uh, we heard a sermon from uh, Brad on this, but they, they had decided, yes, we have to get rid of him, but we can't do it until after Passover. But you see, God had already made the plans long before any of this happened, said before the foundation of the world, in fact, that this would be the last real Passover. Because Jesus would become, as He was designated from the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus moves into that role. Not the king they wanted, he taught very clearly uh, a different way of looking at the things of God, that and 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 he just he couldn't satisfy them at, at any point in any way. They would have waited until after Passover if they could have, but Judas, having told them that he would make Jesus available to him, Judas picked the time, and the time he thought would be best was when Jesus would be alone with his disciples. They could catch him in, in the garden and no problem. They brought enough people to, to be able to take care of the situation. And, and uh, so there they are. And why so many? I think the same reasons that we just talked about. The crowd support. What they didn't know was one, one officer from the Roman guard and one, one, high priest from the, uh, one priest from the temple could have come up and accomplished the same thing. Because this was the plan of God. It wasn't their plan. God said this would happen. Like I said, since the foundation of the world, this plan was in effect. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus is described, uh, described Himself. He says, uh, talking about His ministry, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. So important. No one takes it from him. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down 
and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus has the authority. He has. This is He's the one in charge. They're not arresting Him. He's giving Himself to them. They think they're in charge. They think they're in control. And with all the people they brought with them, they were sure that they were. But isn't it interesting, if you read the account of the garden situation, and I, and I, and I almost read it too early, uh, was this picture of Judas coming up. And he says, who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them in the Gospel of John, I am He. Literally the phrase, I am. Look, you probably have a footnote marker to take it down to the bottom of your, your Bible or into the center column and it will tell you, literally, I am. Where have you heard that before? At a burning bush. It was one of the first times we, we, we really caught the glimpse of this. Moses saying, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am has sent you. And Jesus identified Himself, I am. But what happens next is, is to me amazing. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And it doesn't say a few of them. It just says, when He said it to them, they, they, the crowd, all the soldiers, the temple guard, the Sadducees, and if we add Mark into this, the scribes and the Pharisees and, and all these people that came. And who knows? It says great crowd. There's some that believe that having the, the crowds around, living in the tent cities around the city of Jerusalem, maybe some people out of that crowd even following at a distance. They knew not to get too close when they saw the Roman soldiers. And they, they fell down at the authority of Jesus. Jesus, they, 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 they get up. Uh, they said they fell on the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those who you have given me, I have lost not one. Back in John chapter 10 as well. I, I have this mental picture. And I, I can only tell you how I feel about it. This isn't something that comes out of you know, any research because nothing will tell you exactly this. But when this guy got up again and Jesus says, Now, who are you looking for? It would be kind of like... Uh, Jesus of Nazareth? They had just been blown over by the power of God. I don't think this was something that lightly took it. I don't think they got up with, with great mm, at this point. And Jesus says, you can have me, basically paraphrasing him, you can have me, but my, my friends that are with me, you leave them alone. Now they took off and they fled, it says. At that point they run. Okay? Do you think any soldiers followed him? I don't. Who's in control here? Jesus is. We, t we find that right after this, though, just before the, they, they flee, Peter 
takes his one stand at this. And I have to say, this is the one thing that I look at Peter, and he was completely out of line and wrong because he'd missed the points. But I look at him and say, there is a part of him that really meant that he would stand even to his death if necessary. Because the one thing he did was he drew his, his blade was a fisherman's knife. Okay, uh, it's believed, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sharp knife uh, uh, that fishermen used for cleaning and filleting and stuff like that. It was not a big sword. Uh, but the idea was he drew his weapon. With all of these professional Roman soldiers, with all of the Sanhedrin with their clubs, the temple guard with their clubs, he draws his weapon, whether a sword or, an, or a long knife, and he reaches out at Malchus, we're told his name, the high priest's servant. He doesn't know who he is necessarily. And takes a swap at him. I don't know whether Malchus dodged or whether, Jesus, or whether you know, Peter just didn't have a great aim at that point. Or he was just so excited about how the, the, what the rush was going on, he got his ear. We're told the ear was cut off, and it's, we're also told in, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus reached down and, 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 and then placed the ear and, 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 and he healed him. One more miracle in the midst of these people at the point that he's being arrested. Peter, put your sword away. Do you not know, Peter? And, and this is what it is. is that it's almost like they still underestimate Jesus. They'd seen Him calm a storm. And they said, wow, nature bends to Him. Isn't it amazing? But right here, Peter says, Jesus isn't doing anything. I'll, take, I'll, I'll step in. And, and part of me thinks also that Peter, while he could look at the crowd, I think he still saw what just happened before he did this. I am. Yeah, we're on it. (laughs) Impulsive, maybe. Could be. He's noted for it. Jesus, put your 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 sword, your knife away. Don't don't. This isn't the way it goes. Do you not know that I could have called twelve thousand angels? That's what twelve legions would be. Seventy-two thousand angels. I think the number twelve is interesting. Jesus and the other disciples that are still his are eleven. That makes twelve. It would be like, you know, a thousand angels for each one of us. And like I often say, if two angels took out the whole valley of, of Zor, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of that, there. What would 12,000 angels do? Jesus says, they're not in control. I am. If I needed, if I was willing, if I wanted to do this and to defend myself, I could just call out the angels of heaven, the host of heaven, and they would take care of this. That's not the way it goes. If I don't do this, who will? I'm the one that must do this. And then the disciples fled. Jesus is alone. 
He's by himself. This was also predicted in Isaiah, in the Psalms. He would, he would go through this alone. He would not have the support of the disciples. He would not call on the angels to deliver him. This was the plan before the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't have, my life is not being taken from me. I lay it down. And Isaiah says he was quiet, meaning he didn't come to his defense. He didn't. He just made himself available to be the Lamb of God. He gave his life willingly. I wrote down the words of a, a, of a commentator on this uh, because it was one of those things in a brief sort of way. He said what I would have used pages. And, uh, and also, just so succinctly and so clearly, every detail in the betrayal, Christ's arrest and His death on the cross, came at the hands of sinful men but only because of the eternal purpose of God to redeem a people for Himself. What, what are we to think with, uh, uh, as we stand back and look at this passage? We are to realize that men can stoop to the depths of depravity in pursuit of their desires, and that includes every one of us, by the way. Uh, but in spite of our sinfulness, God purposed to send His Son to suffer at the hands of sinners and then to bear the divine judgment against sinners at the cross. Before we knew Him, He died on the cross. I read from Romans that He did this before anybody said yes to Him. This was all the plan. It was said and settled before the foundation of the world. I have people that will say, you know, if God loved us so much, then why? And they'll think of all the things that are going on around us in our world today. The why is because we live in a sinful, fallen world. And ever since that started, Genesis chapter 3, God has walked with us. Even with the promise of this plan. Even at the giving of, of, of the, the consequences of Eve's sin, He even there told, you will have, uh, your seed will rise up. Seed, singular. Referring to Christ. Your seed shall rise up. Satan will come along and bruise his heel. The idea is, is, is the Achilles tendon there. What happens if your Achilles tendon is bruised or hit hard? You go down. What he was saying in that prophetic picture, he says, your seed is going to rise up and Satan's going to come along and take him down. But that won't be the end of it. He'll rise up and crush his head. And the idea of crushing his head was to put his head under his foot. It doesn't mean to stomp it down and crush it. It means that He will hold authority over Him, judge Him, and cast Him out. 
He will take control. And so the plan is already unfolding. At the very first hint of sin, God is going to bring it together to the point where we are now. Judas, do you not know this is what has to happen? If I don't do it, who else will? I could call angels to take care of this. I mean, said it to Peter. What I want you to see more than anything else in this this morning would be to walk away with an absolute confidence that God in His sovereignty isn't missing a step in any one of our lives at any point at any time. And if we look at Romans 5, which we read this morning as our, as our Scripture reading, we realize that even things that are difficult, He's with us. And sometimes it sounds so trite, but it's so true. In the midst of, of calamity, this verse sounds trite, but Romans 8.28 says, says, all things work together. Not some things or the few things or the righteous. All things work together to bring about God's purpose for us, the good that He has for us, to accomplish His purpose. God is sovereign. Everything is in His hands. And He's in your lives as well. I, I think if I look around and I know in our congregation we have people that, that suffer chronic illness. We have people that have you know, difficulties with their finances because of just the way things are in our culture. I was thinking of one person the other day uh, in 2008, when AGI took a, a, a hit, uh, his, his income went down to 25% of what his retirement initially was going to be. The interesting thing is, and I do put in my two cents worth of, of, of maybe sarcasm here, that AGI got bailed out, but he didn't. And uh, the end result was he now lives, well, he passed this now, he's passed away, but he lived the rest of his life on 25% of what his retirement had planned to be. In the midst of all that, he never stopped praising God. He had some bad days. But he always recognized, somewhere in the midst of all of this, my God is, is with me. God is with us. He is always with us. Every time we come to communion, we celebrate that reality. That He is with us. He's not with us just here at the communion table. For some people, that's where they think that, that, that Jesus is somehow in their, in their faith. That He's tied up into the communion. No, this is just a symbolic picture that He's with us all the time. But He wants us to just take that time to commemorate. I did this for you. I laid my life down for you. I didn't call on the angels because I love you. And I died for you. I laid my life down for you. But he also says that, he, that there's a picture within the communion that he's coming again, which means he took up his life. The resurrection is also seen in that. And that he's coming again. So with all of that, we'd share communion together this morning and ask the ushers to come forward and, and uh, ask that you would hold the emblems until we've all been served and we'll share together.